Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Okay, so uh, this is episode number two of my lab lockdown series, which I am doing in light of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which uh, is sort of the idea is to talk to graduate students about how they're getting through this chaotic time and um, also to just give them an opportunity to talk about their research, what they're interested in, uh, because, you know, so many conferences and other opportunities for professional connection have, have ceased. So... Um, today uh, I'll be talking to Jeff Lees, who is a PhD student at Harvard Business School. He is all but dissertation right now, and he has been working at home for a number of years. And so it's, it's a lifestyle that he is accustomed to. And so he recently shared some uh, good points uh, for sort of his best practices on Twitter. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to have him on the show and talk about that. Also talk about his really interesting research. And uh, so this is definitely something, this, this sort of overall topic of how to sort of structure your time and self-motivate when you're working from home, when you sort of uh, don't have external constraints to keep you on track. It's something that I've thought about a lot. I uh, actually recently published a, um, a blog post about it, which sort of gives my, uh, the, so the title of it is How to Self-Motivate During Your PhD. And it sort of gives my take, my best practices on how to... Uh, keep yourself motivated, keep yourself going, keep yourself productive when you don't have a boss looking over your shoulder, when you don't have uh, deadlines uh, on the order of every week, but on the order of you know months or years or whatever it is. And it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to do, and it's certainly something that we're going to all need to get better at um, as uh, we sort of transition into coronavirus work mode and uh, do not have the sort of structure of, of our usual routine. And so some of the things that uh, I talk about that are relevant to uh, sort of adapting to this new lifestyle is, is, first of all, I have this two calendar system that I talk about. And so the idea is that, um, uh, so I have one calendar called planned, and that is uh, what I plan to do uh, sort of ideally if I'm optimally productive during a day. And so, um, you know, I can block out time for uh, whatever I need to work on and sort of uh, tune it to what works for me and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, this is the sort of thing you need because you want to you wanna have something to aim for, right? But the problem is that on any given day, you are pretty much guaranteed to fall short of that um, potential optimal productivity. And so the second calendar is called Actual, and I, I use that to... Um, to show, to, to, to note down what I actually did during the day. And so I update that throughout the day. And, um, uh, you know, if I plan to spend three hours working on an essay and, you know, I got started 30 minutes late, then you'll see that in the, the actual calendar. And so it gets you a couple things. One is that it gives you credit for the things that you did do. Uh, because I think one of the problems is, is that when you say, oh, this is how I'm going to be productive and, and all that sort of stuff, um, when you fall short of that, it's really, it's really disappointing. It's really frustrating. It's really disheartening. And so um, you need a way to give yourself credit for what you actually did and not just focus on how you're falling short of, of, of what you sort of set for yourself as a goal. And the thing is that it allows you to sort of qualitatively observe patterns in your behavior over time. So if you uh, every day are saying, oh, I'm going to start reading at one o'clock in 
the afternoon. But you um, on your on your actual calendar, you notice that every day you actually spend that that time on your email. You don't get you don't get into reading until two, or you end up you know writing or coding or whatever during that time. Then you can start to um, adjust your your plan and your aims based off of the patterns you observe there. So that's one of the the biggest things that I. Uh, have, have sort of implemented in my own routine, uh, which I think is definitely adaptable to this situation. And you can find that uh, on the uh, blog post that I'm talking about, which I'll share in the, the show notes. And I have some visual aids on that. A, uh, another thing that I, I talk about is um, capitalizing on your natural rhythms. And so this is something that comes up a lot in Cognitive Revolution generally, is that there are morning people and there are night people. And um, the thing about working from home in, in a highly unstructured environment as, as we have now is that you can really lean into those natural rhythms. And I think it's, it's important to do that and to, to acknowledge how you best work um, as an individual and not um, sort of trying to conform yourself to societal expectations of what other people are thinking. And this is going to be much easier to do in the uh, without having to go into the office, without having to uh, sort of uh, allow other people to observe your work schedule, um, and so I think that's something that everyone should sort of take stock of and try and adapt to and, and, and optimize for. And then, and then one other thing that um, I touch on that I think is just a useful conceptual framework for thinking about scheduling is is what um, Silicon Valley venture capitalist Paul Graham terms maker schedules versus manager schedules. And the idea is that if you are making something, if you're doing creative work, that requires you to set out relatively long blocks to engage in, in, in the task and in, in trying to really get deep, get in the flow state of, of what you're trying to create. And this is contrasted with what he calls manager schedules, uh, which is basically the sort of canonical version of it is that you have these one hour chunks throughout the day that are essentially time for meetings and, and sending emails and uh, checking in on people and all that sort of stuff. And so knowing what you're going for in terms of a maker's schedule versus a manager's schedule, and to some extent we each you know, probably have some of each, but at a first approximation, PhD students are more on a maker's schedule and you know, PIs are more on a manager's schedule. But knowing which one you're going for is, is a very useful conceptual framework thinking about how to spend your time. So anyway, that's just a taste of some of the stuff that I talk about in this um, this piece here, uh, I'll make sure to share it in the, the show notes. And if you'd like to learn more, you can, you can read through the whole thing. And so, um, now let's get into the conversation that I had with Jeff. Uh, we touched on best practices for working at home. He has some, some, some really interesting insights about this, and I think uh, they'll be pretty useful. And some of them, uh, will be pretty, pretty applicable in the current situation. So that's enough for me. Let's get into my conversation with Jeff Lees. Okay, so Jeff, thank you for taking the time to talk today. Of course, happy to be here. All right, so you um, you blasted out a tweet a few days ago um, that got some uh, some attention, and it's basically uh, so you, you went through uh, a bunch of different strategies that you have for working from home. And uh, there's some pretty good ones I thought on there. So maybe you could start off by telling us or, you know, give us your background on uh, uh, your sort of the way you work. And then we'll go through each of those uh, sort of points that you made uh, piece by piece. 
Of course. Well, I'm a, for some context, I'm a fifth year PhD candidate at Harvard Business School studying um, organizational behavior and psychology. And so that context, you know, being ABD, uh, I already work from home quite a bit. And especially for people who are a little more psych oriented, my program's a little more quote unquote entrepreneurial. It's more like other social sciences where there's not as much of a strong lab culture. And so you're more independent, you know, which in and of itself is, can be both good and bad. It's a double-edged sword, but it means that uh, there's much more possibility for me to work independently and remotely. And I have very much for lots of personal reasons chosen to do that. Um, and so the, the sort of impetus for the tweet thread was that, like, I'm already living this socially distanced life. I have an office in my house, uh, and I basically work from home four out of five days a week. I go in only for meetings, and I try to, you know, uh, chunk all my meetings into one day. Uh, I live an hour from campus with my wife. And, you know, that was very deliberate. So my lifestyle has not changed drastically uh, my work lifestyle has not changed drastically um, post coronavirus pandemic, and so I thought in the tweet I would, you know, share some of the things I've learned over, you know, very making this very deliberate choice to live this lifestyle about two years ago. Cool. So your uh, first tip is create a dedicated workspace. What are the sort of key components of that for you? Um. Well. I, and you know, this is one of those, this might just be an individual difference, but I'm a big believer in like having spaces dedicated to things and like not doing things in those spaces that they're not dedicated for. So like the bed is a great example. Like I refuse to work from bed because like if I start to associate my bedroom with things other than like sleeping, then I don't get a lot of sleep. Um, and this was very deliberate, and I knew this going ahead, when my wife and I were looking for a house to buy. Um, and so we purchased a place that very much had a space that I could make my office. Um, and knowing that this would be my lifestyle and I needed a comfortable place, um, <laughs> I scrounged together a bunch of stuff. Uh, I ended up getting a, you know, an undergrad, how they have those sort of like those big, ugly, junky um, desks that are in every undergrad dorm. Totally. We all know I, those. Well, I ended up going to the Harvard junkyard and getting one that they were going to throw out for free. So that's no my way. desk. That's where I'm <laughs> sitting right now. Oh. Um, yeah. And so my room is, you know, I have the desk. I, um, and this is one of the things in the tweet. I have a, invested in a comfortable chair. I invested in good bookshelves. So I pretty much literally have anything I could want for academic purposes um, at arm's reach. So pens, pencils, notepad, um, you know, box of tissues, every all my books, uh, everything is set up so I can really be um, sort of self-sufficient in this room. I don't need to get up and look for other things in other rooms. Everything is in here. So that allows this to be the dedicated workspace. Um, you know, I can close the door if I don't want to be distracted by other things. Although there's, you know, I'm home alone outside of my dogs. There's not much to distract me. Uh, so uh, a lot of, you know, sort of the things that you touch on are about imposing sort of artificial structure where none otherwise exists. And that's sort of the key of, of making a, a solid work environment out of your home. So the other thing that you do is that you plan your, your lunch and, and breakfast 
um, you know, sort of breaks or, or uh, however in your workday. So what does that look like for you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Like when you're home, you know, not only do I work from home, my wife works a normal nine to five job. So I am alone. So there's like, there's nothing stopping me from being a bum, basically doing no work and just sitting around playing video games and eating ice cream all day, um, except myself. And so as you alluded to in the tweet, um, you know, obviously I'm not interested in doing that, but it's still very easy to, to develop bad habits. Like, you know, uh, my office is off the kitchen, so it's very easy every time I get up to do whatever, whether it's to go to the bathroom or to get the mail, right? It's, oh, why don't I just grab something from the cupboard? Or, um, And it's very easy to just overeat very quickly. Um, and this didn't only, like, uh, setting a routine didn't only come out of that. It also came out of the fact that, you know, now being home and... Um, you know, I just needed to make sure I had something to eat every day. Like, if I don't plan, I'm just scrounging, right? And that leads to eating less healthy and leading more. So being very deliberate about, um, I pretty much always have the same thing for breakfast every day. Uh, and then lunch is either leftovers or um, I have like a quesadilla recipe that I make for myself pretty much every day. So it gets a little boring, but it definitely helps to prevent sort of thoughtless behavior. Um, another piece, it's not in the thread, but or it's sort of alluded to in the thread, but I work a very strict um, eight to five schedule. Um, my wife leaves her work at, I think in the thread I say nine to five, but she leaves at eight and gets home at five. And so that's when I work. Uh, and, and that's become very strict for me. Uh, I get up at 6.30 uh, and I'm working by eight and I'm done by five. And when my wife gets home at five, she has my attention, unless it's something truly, you know, time constrained or really exceptional, like, you know, there will there will not be a, oh, hey, honey, uh, it's great to see you, but I gotta go finish this, whatever. Um, and I think that example for me exemplifies why it's important. Like, it's not just about productivity. It's not just about eating healthy. It's about the relationship, right? Like. We, you know, this marriage wouldn't last if my wife couldn't expect me to be present when I, when she got home. Um, and so it was really important to me that her and I had time together, that we, you know, we wanted to be a husband and wife. And that meant that I needed to be disciplined about my time so that it didn't leak into our time as a couple. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, so you have a couple things on here that are sort of more break oriented um or sort of just sort of liven up your day and so one of them is, is go for a walk and the other one is um uh music so what do you like to do what sort of podcast do you listen to on those walks what uh what sort of music do you like to listen to what's what's your what are your best practices there <laughs> um well so the the walk is i and i allude to this in the walk like i think as academics we're all we all try to like be maximizers Right. And so for the longest time, I tried to, you know, maximize like, you know, I thought of a walk as being like sort of like a workout. Right. So I tried to integrate it into like other workout things that I did. Right. And I tried to just I tried to maximize the walk. And when you try to maximize things that they, they don't typically go perfectly and you end up just not going for a walk. And so for me, the biggest thing was like stop thinking about a walk as exercise or as like part of some broader goal and just think about it like it's for its own sake because if i don't go for a walk i don't 
um, basically get off my feet all day. Right? I might go to the gym later in the day, but there comes a point where sitting, like where you're sitting, um, like for f- literally four or five hours straight, and like your feet are numb because you haven't stood on them for a while, and you just really want to avoid that. And so, walking for its own sake. I think is important. I think that's sort of like a big cognitive hurdle I had to get over before I started walking regularly. Um, and but also to keep it sort of tidy, I so I have a a podcast that I listen to. Um, it's I'm trying to. It's mostly it's like advice for writers. Um, so it's like a like a What's writing it workshop. It's called Mythcreants. Um, oh. So uh, it's advice for speculative fiction. So the the uh, hosts are like edit professional editors, and so they you know sometimes they'll review books, they'll talk about writing advice, so like story advice, narrative advice. I just like it. Um, you know, it's sort of a nerdy podcast. But what's great about it is all their episodes are strictly half an hour. Um, so I figured out a loop in my neighborhood that to walk it is almost exactly half an hour, and so that really you know I always have something to listen to. Um, a lot of the longer podcasts that I listen to that are very psyche, you know, you might imagine you probably heard of them like Black Goat and Two Psychologists for Beers. Those tend to be longer, and so I usually save those for like washing dishes. <laughs> um, but well, that's a beautiful routine. What was the? I'm trying to remember. You said there was the oh, was the also, music. Uh, yeah, music. Yes. Well, so I I actually almost music sort of. I don't want to say unique for me, but special. I actually almost went into music. I didn't know what I wanted to do like a lot of kids like in high school, but I was a musician. And so music has always been my way of sublimating my need for musical expression. And so I am deeply uh, embedded into the Spotify world. And I have bunches of playlists. Um, I have a running playlist that's that where I just add music that I like to it and I've been do- doing it for about eight years and it's just it actually just crested 3,000 songs <laughs> and so, and so wow. what I usually do is I just play that on random um, yeah. there are times however when I need to be a little more focused and so like something that's instrumental without I'm one of those people if like if there are words in the songs I get a little more distracted it's like hard for me to proofread when I can hear people speaking um, so I have an instrumental playlist uh, but I always, you know, I very regularly and very deliberately, often in the evening, Spotify has these functions where, like, you know, they'll suggest new music for you. So, like, every week they'll give you, like, oh, bands that you listen to are making this music and bands that you might like that you've never heard of, here's some music of theirs. I very deliberately listen to those every week and update my playlist so that I never get really bored because um, it's pretty easy to get bored of the same music. Um, so I'm always I'm always updating my playlists and adding new music. Uh, in truth, I would be doing that regardless of whether I was working from home or not. So that was just a lucky sort of coincidence. But um, the few times where I tried to listen to the top 40 or like turn the radio on, I just got very sick of the music very quickly because it's the same set of music. Yeah. You know, in an so eight-hour day. Go ahead. I guess the key for me there is that you want to take that music choice seriously even if it is quote-unquote background music um you want it to be something that is going to to boost your day and to even if it's sort of in the secondary role give you that extra sort of spurt of of joy and and engagement and that sort of stuff yeah well as much as i sort of uh cautioned against maximizing quote-unquote earlier with walking like 
I I am always looking for new music. Um, and so like the fact that I listen to music all day a lot gives me the opportunity to basically do two things at once. Like I can have music on so I don't go like I wouldn't be able to survive without music playing in the background generally. So um, I can do two things at once. I can have music that helps sort of entertain me while I'm working while also listening to new music. So um, in this case, there is some optimization. Um, and then so yeah, it, and it's very deliberate, like you said. You also mentioned that uh, having sort of social activities is um, important and, and perhaps maybe we need to modulate that one a little bit because of the current circumstances and social distancing. And so I guess one thing that I've been uh, doing a lot of, which has worked really well for me, is picking up the phone and, and calling people who you know I have a longstanding and, and really deep relationship with, but I wouldn't otherwise normally talk to necessarily just because we don't, I'm not in the habit of picking up the phone and that, that sort of stuff. And I've, I found it to actually be a huge social benefit of the, the current social uh you know distancing circumstances so what uh what are your current strategies for sort of seeking out social engagement uh sort of in the current circumstances um a lot of it's sort of well so i you know for me i have hobbies that i've pursued my whole life and because i live i now live in the quote-unquote suburbs right not a, you know um when i lived in boston for my first couple of years i could you know walk to restaurants i could walk to the movie theater i could walk to a lot of different things and i could go take a train to a friend's house things like that now i i, I have to be much more deliberate um because i'm more isolated and things are within walking distance and and sort of that same that same need for intentionality applies even if you do live in a city but now you're basically quarantined in your house right i um, it's, it's funny, both my wife and I have very strong, like hermit tendencies, but she's very introverted and I'm very extroverted. So she's fine being a hermit, but after like a couple weeks of being a hermit, I just get starved. Um, so like one of the hobbies that I do is I play board games and role-playing games. And I've actually had a standing group that we, we meet every week and we've been meeting for pretty much since I started at Harvard. So we've been meeting for about four years weekly. Um, I run it. And so I, you know, put in a lot of effort to making sure the group stays together and that we're organized. We meet every Tuesday night, six to nine um, consistently. Uh, and this past week, we just moved online. So playing games online is much more difficult than in person. But, you know, I think all of us are experiencing the same thing. But I, um, for me, the moral of the story was deliberateness, like sort of like with the food. I think if once you sort of once you settle into a routine of working from home, it's very easy to unintentionally just become a hermit. Um, and so you have to be very thoughtful about like, what do you want? Like, what are the social activities that you actually get enjoyment from? rather than just being like, oh, I'm being a bum, I should go to the bar. It's like, well, you like that's that probably just means you want social interaction, but the bar is just an easy choice rather than maybe you want to engage with specific people or doing specific activities. So um, just being deliberate and uh, intentional about your behavior. Um, yeah, I think, a, that, we, I think that's ahead. a really cool point because I think as adults, sort of, it's easy to default to, oh, let's grab a pint, let's grab a cup of coffee, and to, uh, to you know, have dedicated activities that you do uh, w with other humans that are not based around sort of consumption of, of various 
uh, you know, beverages and that sort of stuff. I think that that's uh, certainly something that uh, we could see see more of. So definitely. Uh, I'd like to sort of uh, go to your last point here, which I think is potentially, you know, up there in terms of, uh, you know, the most important, which is don't forget to enjoy the independence and uh, the ability to, you know, uh, plot your own course and and spend your time how you want to. And that is, it really is uh, a blessing in so many ways. So how do you uh, sort of maintain your positivity about that, perhaps when it gets hard or you feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's slightly isolating and that sort of stuff? That's a great question. I, I sort of have like a meta narrative about it, uh, which is right. Like um, this, you know, and it's about being an academic, right? This is the academic life that we all putatively want. We want to be ho- totally independent, driven only by our own intellectual desires and beholden to very few people. Um, and so it always, right. I always approached it. Like if I want to be a faculty member, why would I behave differently in my doctoral program than I would as a faculty member? Right. And that helps sort of, that helps ground a lot of the things I already mentioned, right? Like it's important, you know, it's not only important for me to be productive at home for its own sake, but it's important because like, these are, these are literally lifelong skills. Like being able to be home and be productive is a skill that I will need in order to be successful as a faculty member in the 21st century. Um, and there's something very like when, when I frame this, not as like, Oh, this is, this sucks. I have to be home four days a week. But when I, you know, this is sort of like classic, like nudge, right? Like a framing effect. When I frame it rather as like, this is me practicing the skills that will allow me to be a successful academic for the next 60 years of my career. Like it's, it's sort of, it's much more empowering. Um, and it also helps you think about it in a much more permanent way. Like it's not the, oh, you know, this is a temporary one to two year thing before I get a tenure track job and I have to kind of return to the classroom. It's like, no, like this is my life, right? Um, and when you when you frame it like that, it becomes a much more empowering experience. It, it really, it makes you think about what you want, like what I want from the space that I'm in, right? It's really easy to see these sorts of things as temporary, but they're not. Um, and I get a lot of enjoyment from that, from that, I think that makes, independence. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I actually really like that. And I think that, uh, yeah, we spend so much uh, of our time sort of forecasting about being in a state that is better than what we currently are. And I think that your mindset to be like, no, this is, I'm literally, I am here because this is where I, I want to be. And I am setting myself up to have what I currently have in my career for the rest of life. So why not just enjoy it now? Um, and and appreciate it and, and lean into it now and I think that's that's a great mindset. So there's one there's one last thing that I want to ask you about here, which is sort of a curveball. There's a I saw a BBC article also on on best practices for working home, and I must say yours yours is probably better than the the BBC article though you make some common points. But there's one thing that they they mention uh, that you don't, uh, which is point number one: get dressed. Um, do you wear full-on work clothes when you have your, you know, sort of eight to five schedule, uh, or do you allow yourself some flexibility in that? How what what's your, what's your take on that? Um, I don't. Uh, I'm currently in. I I have like a basically a set of pajamas I wear every day, <laughs> or it's like you know a pair of like sweatpants and like a comfy t-shirt and some flannel. Um, but I I understand that. Um, 
I actually, being an academic, I have a meta theory, of course, about everything that I've told you. Um, and my meta theory is um, basically when, you know, when you're working independently, you, you really are sort of at your own whims. And what I would say to anybody is rather than taking discrete advice, like my thread, for example, or like anything you might read, like you have to be metacognitive about it. You have to think, think, ask yourself, what are you good at? And then don't worry at all about maximizing what you're good at because you're good at it and you'll maximize it already by default. Like think only about what you're bad at and then structure your life around mitigating the things that you're bad at, right? So. A good example is I'm very good at getting up in the morning. Like I have, I'm a morning person. I have no problem getting up at 6:30, despite there being nothing in the universe forcing me to get up at 6:30. Um, right? I have no problem sort of shifting my mindset. And, and actually, I see the clo I see the clothing thing as sort of similar to my point about spaces. Like for me, it's not about clothing; it's about spaces. But I can completely understand how, for some people, it's about clothing. It's about like I need to be in the mindset, and the clothing is the way that I try to trigger that mindset. Um, so while it's not something for me, it's not something that I use. I totally understand its benefit um, to some people, especially if perhaps you're not as the privilege as I am to actually have a separate office space. Like if you are forced to work from your kitchen table, um, like then I can absolutely see how putting on like more typical work clothes helps you engender the mindset that you need to be productive. Yeah, no, I think that that, those are a lot of great points. Um, and I think that sort of puts a, you know, like you said, a sort of overarching point on, uh, a lot of the different things we talked about. So uh, that, that's been interesting to hear your, your perspective on, on these best practices for working from home. And maybe we could take a couple minutes to uh, talk about your research. You, you recently published uh, a really cool paper with Mina Chakara on uh, meta perceptions uh, and you know, uh, sometimes how those go wrong. So uh, you know, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about that or you know, current projects or extensions of that or whatever's on your mind right now. Uh, well, lots of things are on my mind. I'm actually um, I'm excited to see some of the research coming out of the Psych Accelerator on COVID-19. But, uh, you know, my interests lie in the consequences of inaccurate social judgment, particularly in socially sensitive domains like um, intergroup conflict and moral behavior. And so that's where a lot of my projects currently lie. So that project that you referred to recently published with Mina Chakara looks at um, group meta perceptions, which I define as not your ability to to project, or rather not your ability to predict how other people perceive you, which is a normal meta perception, but your ability to predict how other people perceive the collective behavior of your group. Uh, in that paper, we apply it to politics. So can Democrats and Republicans accurately predict how members of the other party perceive their party? Uh, spoiler alert, they can't. Um, but the thought itself came from research I'm uh, started and I'm currently doing in business context, which is can you know leaders of organizations predict how those outside the organizations, both members of the public and relevant stakeholders, can they predict how the organization will react, sorry, how they will react to organizational behavior? Um, I think of this in the context of like a lot of organizational scandals you know, a lot of scandals are just people are doing something bad and they know that's bad and they tried to conceal it and it came out. But I think there are a fair number of scandals that you could describe as 
clearly the company just didn't see this happening. Like they thought what they were doing would be perceived positively when in fact it was perceived highly negatively. I think of Starbucks's race together campaign in 2015. Um, and so for me, it was like, what leads someone in that position to be so uh, overconfident about how people will react to the behavior of their organization. So that gets to a lot of questions. It's sort of the psychology of these so perspective, reputationally relevant forecasts. Um, it also relates to how people make judgments about groups relative to individuals. So there's sort of a an entitivity, uh, sorry, the, an old word in social psychology, entitivity. How do we perceive collectives versus individuals? And so I'm trying to, you know, bridge research across intergroup relations and moral psych. So there's a lot of research in moral psych about how we make moral judgments of individuals, much less about how we make judgments about collective groups and their behaviors. So like political parties, but also uh, I have some research on perceptions of corporate misconduct and then integrating that into research on metacognition and metacognitive accuracy. Can people actually forecast these judgments in others? Um, yeah, and I have a, several projects on those right now. Uh, I will be interested to see where my research goes now that I'm approaching the end of my doctoral career. So who I might end up with uh, as a postdoc advisor and where I might, where I might end up uh, for a tenure track job, how that might shift my interests. Uh, but right now I have a bunch of projects that are sort of in the later stage looking at group meta-perception, meta-perceptive accuracy, and judgments of corporate misconduct. Well, uh, that is all phenomenally interesting, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of your research, I'm a big fan of, of Mina's research as well, and uh, I'm excited to see how you sort of develop some of those ideas that uh, I think are, are really interesting and really important in the meta, uh, group meta-perceptions paper. And uh, I'm sure we could talk about it all day, but um, I think it's time for us to sort of wrap, theme, wrap things up here. So thanks for taking the time to talk today. This was really cool to get your perspective on some of these things. Of course. Thank you for having yeah, me. And uh, good luck with everything. And uh, I hope you uh, stay productive and healthy and uh, all the best to you and your wife. Thank you. You as well. Stay productive and healthy as we wait out this global pandemic. Yeah.